Hello and welcome to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. In this second season of the show, host Jordan Guth is joined by a new guest each episode who knows something about hi-fi that Jordan doesn't. And who knows, while he's learning about all of this, you might learn something too. So with no further ado, here's Jordan and this week's guest. Hello and welcome back to another episode. My name is Jordan Guth and I am the host for this season. Today, we have Daryl Wilson with us from Wilson Audio. Uh, Daryl is the CEO of Wilson Audio, uh, and we're really excited to talk to him about um, kind of the marketing behind Wilson Audio, as well as his thoughts on the kind of landscape of the whole hi-fi industry. And of course, we'll see how the conversation goes, and uh, we may go down uh, some other conversation paths. So, Daryl, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, It's great having you here. Jordan, thank you for having me here. I look forward to this discussion. Awesome. Um, I guess to get started, one of the really interesting things when we originally spoke, which was a a few weeks ago, um, that I thought about was this idea that you are not the typical person that is running a hi-fi company. And what I mean by that is you were actually born into hi-fi. Like hi-fi was around you from birth all the way through to you kind of leading uh, Wilson Audio. And I wanted to kind of get a sense of your first kind of memories of hi-fi growing up in uh, a Wilson household with hi-fi around you, I'm sure. Um, and if there was one of those aha moments that said, yes, I am, I am super interested in being part of this hi-fi community and running Wilson Audio. Man, there's a lot to unpack there. That was a big one. Uh, That's a big yeah. one to start. I mean, yeah, so let's distill down my entire uh, 44 years of life uh, into just a few minutes, right? I'll do my best. Yeah. I'll do my best. Um, yeah, earliest memories. So uh, uh, going back, hearing uh, my dad play music late at night while I'm trying to go to sleep. I can remember <laughs> music um, downstairs on the uh, original Wham! Uh, I remember prototypes kind of littering the house um, as he was developing and creating as, you know, as I was riding my bike around the neighborhoods and playing with friends and coming home to dad and, and mom always had something going on um, at dinner time. There, I don't think they were normal discussions, even though for me, they were normal as I grew up and as I went over to friends' houses and, and ate dinner at friends' houses. I hope kids still do that. But anyway, yeah. Um, Maybe not pandemic times, but kids still do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're getting back into it. Uh, but th- there was a lot of discussion about uh, products and sound and uh, what the next recording venue would be and uh, what the market's saying, what the reviewers are saying. Um, you know, where where do we need to expand distribution and, and uh, what are our dealers doing that are effective? And so business conversations were just a part of table talk. So for me, that that seemed really normal. Uh, I ended up getting my degree in international business with an emphasis on business. Um, and so much of, of the material that was taught was very familiar. Um, and so, you know, going back to childhood, um, I didn't mow lawns um, to earn money. I mowed lawns, you know, because I lived in my parents' house and that was expected <laughs> of me. Um, but as far as earning money, it was, you know, what can we do as far as packing records and sending them out or uh, twisting wires and and helping build products in the garage. 
I thought it was weird that my friend's parents had cars in their garage <laughs> when we had <laughs> with soldering irons and test equipment and prototypes and, and enclosures being made and whatnot. Um, so yeah, looking back on my childhood, um, it, it was wonderful seeing uh, my parents through the stress of even losing our house at one point that they were equally yoked in this whole adventure of building this company, doing the American dream, right? Um, that uh, one wasn't greater than the other. They brought their own unique set of skills to the table to uh, make Wilson Audio work. My dad was, was the creativity behind it. He was the one that was coming up with the ideas of the products and, and his passion for sound and understanding sound because of uh, his history of being a recording engineer. He knew what was supposed to be on the recordings and he knew how to develop the product to extract that information. My mom, very organized, um, uh, very business oriented and, and made sure that all the creativity that my dad was putting together, she was able to file and format and uh, distribute in an organized fashion. Uh, so, so watching them together, it was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful example of, of two people being equally yoked, uh, pushing forward through, you know, extreme obstacles at times to get to this end result. Um, so that, yeah, growing up, that's kind of a foundation of, of what I experienced and whatnot. I know uh, going to recording sessions was something that, uh, I was able to do as a kid. Some of them, you know, because I was young, I didn't quite comprehend or understand what was going on. And so they, some of them were kind of boring because you're sitting there and you're hearing the same piece of music played over and over <laughs> and over again. And you have my dad and Bruce Leak and they're, you know, on, on the microphone, Hey, can you play that again? Play that again, play that again. Um, and, and so for a kid, it, it gets kind of boring, but I, I did find myself running around these venues and, um, you know, exploring, uh, the the areas, the spaces in which music was created, and and then hearing those spaces, there there started to be these connections for me as I listened to the recordings and remembering being there at the recordings. You know, fast forward in my life, I've had the opportunity to go to um, a lot of different places um, to, uh, as my dad used to put it, and I still put it, calibrate my ears. Uh, yeah. listening to live unamplified music, which is Wilson Audio's North Star when it comes to voicing our products um, in the Musikverein and the Staats Opera, um, listening to the Vienna uh, Boys Choir in the chapel there, the, the Hofburg Chapel, Abravanel Hall, Tabernacle on Temple Square, um, the Concertgebouw, Severance Hall. I mean, in just about every one of these venues, We've had special access and we're able to go in during rehearsals and walk around the room and listen. And then live performances, obviously, you know, the acoustics change when you sit hundreds of people, you know, down in the chairs were effective bass traps. Right. Yeah. Um, but just experiencing sound like that. Um, so it, it, it's it's it really is an impossible task to distill down into a conversation, the totality of those experiences. Yep. I feel genuinely blessed. I feel genuinely um, appreciative toward my parents and how they raised me and they took the time to talk about the business. They took the time to show me and they took the time as I got older to give me opportunity um, to earn money, not just give me money, but earn money by building in the business. I think that's awesome. Now, when it comes to 
your kind of involvement in Wilson Audio, did you always know that you wanted to be involved? Um, or was this something that, uh, like as a kid, it's your parents' company, so you're kind of working there. Was there always kind of this um, this idea that you wanted to one day run Wilson Audio? Or was there an aha moment when you're like, yes, I want to commit myself to Wilson Audio instead of any other endeavors or anything like that? There was never an expectation for any of uh, my parents' children, any of my siblings um, to be involved in any capacity with Wilson Audio. They always made it clear that there was an opportunity, but it was up to us to perform. Um, uh, My dad and I talked a lot about companies where uh, nepotism was an issue and um, founders of companies handed the company over to uh, children that that weren't prepared, uh, didn't have an interest. And then all of a sudden those companies go bankrupt and all the resources get drained and sucked out of the company, leaving it, you know, just a shell. And then what's left after that? It's the people that put uh, all the time and effort into building that company. They're left without a job. Uh, So in our family, that was a very serious conversation that if you're going to be a part of the business, you have to perform. Yeah. And, um, and, and every single one of my siblings, we all put time and effort into uh, various departments here at Wilson Audio. And um, my younger sister, my two older brothers decided to go different ways and they're excelling greatly in their fields. Um, and I'm really proud of them. So uh, all of us had the opportunity to work at Wilson Audio. Um, throughout childhood, of course, children will be children. Uh, I worked in the business and then didn't work in the business and then went off to college. And of course, I was away from the business and and focusing on on my uh, getting my education, getting my degree. I started off actually in, in the arts. Um, my my classes were, you know, in, in sculpting and uh, drawing and, and composition and whatnot. And I came to a profound realization that the people that really have money when it comes to artists are their family after they die. And it's like, <laughs> I, I want to take care of my family. I want to travel with my family. And, and, and looking at my dad and, you know, year after year, decade after decade, I saw, hey, he's doing some really creative things. And I love that creative nature of, of his endeavors. And so I was, I was able to take, uh, you know, what I learned there in my internal passion for art. Yeah. And then I switched degrees and it's like, okay, how, how could I really bring value to Wilson audio and help it, um, uh, sustain into the future and then pr- bring something unique to where I'm contributing to the development of products. Um, and so that's why I, I, I switched gears um, into the, the business side of it. So I, I'm glad I did. My parents were very wise. They made sure that I understood the company. And so they put me in a fabrication shop and I was building enclosures with my hands, set some really, uh, uh, really great records. I'm, re- I'm proud of hundreds of enclosures with no flaws. Um, and there was a lot of pride in it. It's like whenever I saw Wilson Audio on the back, it was always Wilson Audio. That's Dave Wilson Audio. And it's like, I want to make sure my dad's proud. And I want to make sure that anyone else around here knows that Daryl isn't just in the building because of his last name. Daryl yeah. performs. Daryl executes. Daryl creates um, excellence when whatever he puts his hands on. And I still strive um, to be qualified for the job. Um, so, uh, any, so every, just about every department I've experienced with, um, 
And that was frustrating for me as I was getting, because it's like, hey, dad, I want to work right next to you. Um, but in his wisdom and my parents' wisdom, it was, you need to understand the business and all the parts of it. Because if you're going to create enclosures, if you're going to develop prototypes and you're expecting them to be built um, consistently and um, uh, to the level of of excellence that we have, then you need to, you need to have hands-on experience. For um, sure. Don't, so, so don't fact, ever yeah. ask somebody to build something or do something that you wouldn't do yourself. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So you were building Wilson speakers, um, throughout your youth. Does that mean there's actually Wilson speakers out there that are potentially still in use today that you have actually built? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, the, whenever a, uh, a Watt puppy six or seven comes back to the factory, um, to, to be certified authentic, um, I actually go back there and, and I'll pull up the foam and there are, uh, specific places that our craftspeople sign. So when a product is built in the fab shop, the enclosure is built up, they sign it when they're done, they move it on to gel coat is gel coated, painted, uh, and then built in production, every single craftsperson that touches it, they sign it, right? So there are a lot of signatures in every single Wilson Audio product. It's kind of like the hilt on a on a, on a, a Japanese made sword, right? Yeah. You you pull off the hilt and you see it. Um, so yes, there there are speakers. I'd say that there are um, at least a thousand speakers out there that um, have Daryl Wilson's signature in their you know in the in the woofer or. Um, you know, I, I built uh, just, I think, every single uh, puppy from the Watt Puppy 6 line. I built just about every single puppy that was in the Watt Puppy 7. Um, I built lots of Watts. Uh, I helped out with X1s, uh, with Cubs, with Center Channels. Um, with, uh, when Sophia first came online, uh, I was in the fab shop and um, we were building 40 a week. Oh, wow. And, um, so not everyone, of course, but I, I, I was a part of the team that yeah. was building those. And so, yes, um, there are lots of Daryl Wilson signatures tucked away inside enclosures that are still operating and, and providing joy to the listener. That is awesome. It's kind of really cool to think that people have these, uh, I'm going to call them the Easter egg speakers without probably even realizing it. Now, when it comes to looking at a new line of speakers or subwoofers or anything like that, do you start with um, like sonic properties that you want to hit? Or do you start with like a design? Uh, or do you just start with the price point? Like just generally speaking, like how do you come up with, let's say the next loudspeaker in your lineup? Is this kind of a, a thought process of we want to expand our our kind of reach to uh, a more entry level price point, or we really want to do a showcase product, or we just want something that's going to fit within this size of cabinet. Is there kind of a thought process behind how like a new speaker gets developed or a new product gets developed? There are several different thought processes, and it depends on the scope of the project. And what I mean is, if uh, uh, let's say you have uh, Sasha. Um, Sasha has a pedigree, it, there's an established design for it and going from one series of Sasha to the next series of Sasha, you have time. And during that time, we have development that's going on for other projects. And so we know going from, uh, one series and then with that time, uh, five years later, there's another, uh, there's an evolution of that product. 
we take all the grassroots stuff that we've been developing for all the other products and what can be implemented um, and beneficial for this particular design. That thought process on how to fine tune and polish an established design is very different than going into a product, let's say, um, from like the Max series, Max going to Alex. Uh, Max was established and there were three uh, iterations of Max. And, and then we realized that that form factor and the way that the time alignment uh, mechanically was developed and designed into that product could be better and that we couldn't refine that platform anymore, that there had to be a ground up refresh. And so uh, that that process is different than going from, let's say, a Sasha 1 to a Sasha 2. Um, developing brand new products um, like uh, Toontot. So Toontot, there really wasn't anything before it. We had the lot which was the original mini monitor. And then we had the Cub, which its form factor is very different than the other products that we have. Um, MTM, small, it's deep and, and very narrow. And it, it was an initially designed to fit in between studs in the wall and installed ah. in, the, in the 90s. There, you know, the home theater uh, boom was going on and, and uh, we were getting feedback saying, hey, we want something we can put into the wall. And so it doesn't matter how deep it is, it has to fit between studs. That turned out not to be completely accurate. And we learned a lot from from that development. Um, and a lot of other products that we've developed, uh, we take those lessons and we we add it uh, <laughs> to the to the playbook, so to speak. Oh, that's um, cool. And then uh, going from the cub, uh, you have the duet, duet series one and two. And the feedback from duet was, it's great but can you make it smaller? Right. <laughs> so, um, every time it's different. And that's what the, one of the things I love about what I do. And I think that keeps the team invigorated here is that it isn't a standard there. We do have protocols put into place and it's essential to have systems put into place for efficiency sake when you're a, a small team and you have to really be efficient with every motion and be very cautious with your resources. When we're talking about um, the designs of new speakers and, and kind of the constraints and how you build up a new product and how it changes when you're evolving a product versus when you're building an entirely new product, um, there, I mean, visual design is one thing, uh, but then there's like the acoustic design. So for the acoustic design, there's some manufacturers that go fully into the spectrum of measurements. So they say this has to measure a specific way. Mm -hmm. And there's some folks that go all the way to the other side, which is this has to sound a certain way. And they do that in different ways. How does Wilson kind of approach the sound of Wilson speakers? Are, are Wilson speakers um, kind of measured and they measure a certain way and then you adjust them um, by ear? Uh, or is it kind of more of the artistic preference? You, you go by what sounds good to a specific set of ears and you present that to the, uh, the market and see what kind of sticks. Yeah, our, our sonic North Star is live on amplified music. So at the end of the day, when a, when a system is finished, it has to be able to reproduce uh, music especially live recordings and fool the mind to thinking that that performance is happening in front of you, around you. It's, it's, you're, you're transported 
um, mentally to that performance. That's, that's the ideal, right? So for us, we need to get that reference. So listening to music in spaces where live unamplified music is uh, being performed is, is critical to calibrating your ears and getting yourself, um, in the, the mental headspace to be able to sit down in front of a prototype with a breadboard crossover and make adjustments to component values and be able to effectively say this one is more real than that one. Right. So that, you know, that's, that's the process, our North star on amplified music. And then, um, everything we do when it comes to the sonic fine tuning of it, there's science and there's art, there's measurements and there's, uh, value equations and judgment that we put on what's being reproduced. Um, so it does go back and forth. Developing any loudspeaker, um, uh, Vern's in 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 uh, room number two where, where the prototype is. I'm in there. We're taking measurements. We're uh, making adjustments based on measurements. But you can't measure everything. I don't think that we have the equipment that can measure the the nuances that give us that feeling, that visceral reaction. That whoa, that sounds like the guitar's right there. I think that we have good tools to be able to measure certain things and get us close. And maybe in 10 years, there'll be tools that will be developed that will help us further do that. But as as for right now, the final voicing of a crossover is done absolutely by year. We measurements get us maybe 80% of the way there. And then it's value judgments and and going to reference recordings and, and whatnot to be able to to be able to say yes this sounds real, uh, changing this capacitor value, uh, a, a tenth of a percent or one percent. Uh, yes, this one sounds more real than that one. Awesome. That's uh, really interesting. And I think it is about time for us to take a quick musical uh, interlude here. And we'll be right back after the break and pick up where we left off. And welcome back from the break. I am still here with uh, Daryl Wilson from Wilson Audio. And just before the break, we were talking about how in developing a new line of speakers, measurements and listening and kind of ear tweaking uh, comes into play. So, Daryl, when it comes to the measurements versus kind of the listening experience, what measurements are important to you when you're developing a speaker? Yeah, uh, good question. The, I think that there's the, the standard measurements. Uh, frequency response, phase angles, crossover points, um, all those things. So frequency response, how flat is the system from, let's say, 20 hertz, low frequency, so the bass, how flat is that relative to one kilohertz? Um, so right in your mid-range area between 500 hertz and 1.5 kilohertz, and then all the way out to, let's say, 20 kilohertz. So the the symbols, the splash of the symbol, the high-frequency information. Um, frequency response, a lot of companies kind of hang their hat on how flat can we get that? Um, how, how much difference or variation in volume uh, is it between the, the woofers, the mid-range, and the tweeter? 
Um, I think that that's important. That gets us down the road. And, and we do monitor that closely during the development process. Phase angles and crossover points are also absolutely critical. You don't want to, you don't want to listen to some music and say, oh, the mid-range, I really hear the mid-range right there. And I can hear where it transitions from the mid-range to the tweeter. So the crossover point between the mid-range and the tweeter is critical. And, and, and we do make sure that that's as seamless as possible in every one of our designs. And I think a lot of loudspeaker manufacturers do a, a really a great job at doing that. One thing that I can say is that uh, most designers don't prioritize time coherency and alignment between the drivers. So if you think about uh, a flat baffle, right? And you have your woofer, let's say it's one woofer, one mid-range, one tweeter, and those are all on the same plane. The launch point of the information that's going to each one of those drivers, that should arrive at the listener at the same time, right? But we know through experimentation that there's a delay through crossovers and, um, and wire lengths and all that stuff, all those play a very small part to either uh, slowing down or uh, allowing the signal to reach the driver before the other drivers get their signal from the crossover. So, yeah, the, so, so time delay is very interesting. It's, it's uh, different than phase angles, and that's a, a whole nother deep discussion, and I don't want to geek out too much, but yeah. let's just simplify it to the point of when you're sitting in your seat, if you hear the tweeter information first, and then there's a delay to the mid-range, You'll know that it sounds like music, but is it is it connected the way that it would be connected if the musician was right there in the room with you? So we have special equipment. We go through heroic efforts to make sure that the front leading edge of impulses going through our speaker from the crossover, so main and connector through the crossover to the driver, that as you're sitting in your room, that the information going to the woofer, the mid-range, and the tweeter all arrive at the listener at the same time. Our, so is that, is that, sorry to interrupt you there, but is no, that no, why- this is good stuff. I love this stuff. The design of your speakers, I, I mean, they're, they're quite striking designs, like uh, especially the, I think it's the Wham and those are, I don't want to say, concave but they have kind of like a little bit of a of an angle from the the top to the bottom yes yes okay. yeah that it's it's for us we believe it's the most elegant approach and the cleanest and purest approach to getting time alignment between drivers is a mechanical approach to um instead of injecting something in the signal path uh that digitally delays and you're adding something to the signal, but we want that to be as clean as possible. You physically move the drivers back and forth relative to each other. And we, we have all that information in our owner's manual yeah. and our speakers are the most adaptable to a listener's room. So you think about, I am uh, 10 feet away from my speakers and my ear height is 39 inches off the ground. You can adjust Wilson Audio speakers to have time coherency at that position uh, more refined than any other design uh, in the market. Well, um, and, and that's then let's something else that I saw, which is yeah, yeah. Th this idea that the the Wilson speakers, I've 
so my first interaction with seeing them physically in person uh, was actually in Montreal a few weeks ago at um, at Sim Audio. They they had uh, I believe it was an Alexa, and I I looked around the speaker. It looks gorgeous, very well put together and, and made and all that. And at the back was something I've, I haven't really seen on any loudspeakers that I visited, which is this adjustment. I'm going to say notches, where you can actually set the notch of the the specific. Um, I guess it would be the specific driver that it was. And and you were just about to say how, like, if you move, you can change this. So yes. Wilson Audio is kind of um, part of the audience that you're going after. Maybe the the people that are more likely to tweak the speakers and adjust them for their specific needs and their specific environments. Yeah. Going back to the whole concept of which measurements are most important. Let, let's say we hung our hat only on frequency response. We all know as we get older, the presbycusis sets in. The ability to hear high frequency information um, is is diminished. So there's high frequency uh, attenuation in our in our perception of the world around us. So if we say, oh, well, our speaker is flat down here, but, you know, the timing's a little off. But, man, it is the it's ruler flat. Well, as you get older, your ability to actually perceive some of that diminishes. Neuroscientists have found that your ability to to detect a frequency response and time, uh, timing between elements, uh, they're two different neural pathways. Um, frequency response is based off of the inner ear and the hairy cochlea and, and, and all that stuff, right? And, and that kind of has, uh, it, it varies depending on mileage, we'll say. Okay. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. So like my bald head, the inside <laughs> of that little structure, the hair, you know, you lose hair, you lose your ability to sense high frequency information or the frequency response curve with time uh, is slightly altered from person to person. Timing, on the other hand, is is a function of the wave front hitting your skull, hitting one side, it, one eardrum before the other eardrum. And your ability okay. to calculate that um, is is based on, you know, depends on if you believe in uh, intelligent design or evolution. If you hear a snap in the in the forest, yeah. right? Any one of us, if we're hiking alone and we're worried about cougars, like we are here in Utah, <laughs> you hear a snap, a twig snap, you will look almost exactly where that is. That's time delay. That's one ear heard the snap first, and then it propagated around to the other ear. Your ear, your other ear sensed it, and then your mind did all the calculations almost instantaneously, right? And it's like it's in that direction. So for me, that's fascinating, right? We underestimate how sensitive we are to timing. And it's okay if people want to hang their hat on, on frequency response, and that's the direction they go. I believe and we believe here as a team. And, and once again, we go through heroic efforts to make sure that our designs can get the timing right. And that translates to when you close your eyes, holy cow, that musician is sitting on the stool with a, an acoustic guitar right between the speakers. And I don't have a center channel, but he's right there. Right. And, and that's the benefit of it. It serves the music. Um, so that kind of leads me to a next thought, which is this idea of, um, and you're, you're already kind of moving this way. Somebody moves into a new location. 
So they have a different uh, room layout or anything like that. They have the ability to kind of adjust and, and tweak and and kind of change the speaker to to kind of morph it into that space. Has the designs of the speakers of the Wilson speakers changed over the years as um, kind of I guess the design of houses and the the design of listing rooms and all that have changed. Man, we'd, we'd be in a bad place if we weren't uh, evolving and, and adapting and learning new things. Uh, every year, um, we develop in several different categories, and one of them is uh, what I like to affectionately call grassroots development. And so um, in the materials, in the binding post, the solder we use, uh, the drivers, uh, any, any piece of a loudspeaker um, – I like to think of it as like a, like a orchestra, right? So each piece I like to, to say, okay, so, so binding posts is one of the violinists. So can we, can we make this little piece better? And even if we get a, a half a percent better or 1% better, and then the materials over here, okay, we, we got 3% better. And then this, the timpani player, well, we found a brand new material and we can use it in this strategic location. Right. So, so that improved 5% and all of them by themselves, it's not for me, it's not good enough for, Hey, here's, here's the next new product, right? There has to be several of these things coming together to make a substantial sonic improvement. So over time, yes, I would say going back to like the original wham, um, that did have, um, the ability to adjust the modules in the time domain relative to each other. What it didn't have was the ability to adjust them aspherically. So it was just fore and aft. It okay. wasn't, there, there wasn't the adjustability we have now in the Wham Master Chronosonic uh, or the Chronosonic XVX, the Alex V um, or, or the Alexia V. Um, so going back to the original Wham, uh, my father recognized, he identified, created protocols and a system to be able to accurately measure and repeat and then manufacture this into the design, uh, the ability to adjust the modules one to another. Form follows function with Wilson Audio Designs. So take that original wham and now fast forward it to, you know, the evolution of uh, uh, listeners rooms and uh, architecture of homes and, and whatnot. How is Wilson Audio different? We have vastly different materials and advanced materials we're using on the enclosures to make them as inert and as damped as possible. Uh, the isolation between the modules is far more advanced than it ever has been. Uh, the drivers, we work directly with driver manufacturers and we go back and forth with getting samples, experimenting, refining, and then, uh, and then providing them with that feedback. They produce new samples and we go back and forth, back and forth until we get the driver that works for us. And then we take that same driver and we further modify it in house. So no one else has that design. Right. Um, and then capacitors. So go back to the original Wham. Uh, almost 50 years ago, we're coming up on our 50th anniversary next year, by the way. We're really yeah. excited about that. Uh, so you go back 50 years and, and we're relying on, on you know, what was available at the time. We wind our own capacitors now. We have control over how they're wound, what material they're wound, and to exact values for us for each individual product. 
Um, you, the internal wiring is different and far more advanced than it ever has been. The, the, the acoustic diodes, the footers, the spikes on the bottom of our speakers are specifically and specially designed. It, it, there's a lot of difference between what we're doing now and what we were doing 50 years ago. And it, to me, I, that's the way it should be, right? Um, there, there's a lot of throwbacks and, hey, this, this loudspeaker, this thing uh, did, did great things 30 years ago. And we reintroduced it the same as it was 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, a lot's changed in 30 yeah. years, right? I think now, it would be cool if you say, hey, it did great then. What about uh, if we were to introduce it again now with current technology? That's more interesting for me. Now, is the consumer that would have bought Wilson Audio speakers, let's say, almost 50 years ago, the same consumer that buys Wilson Audio speakers today? Is it the same demographic or are you focused on on different um, audiophile individuals. Yeah, that's the that's the ten million dollar question right there, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I think a common thread is people that love music, people that want to spend time engaging with music. There are certain people that can stand in front of an art piece and weep. Uh, there are certain people that'll spend uh, ten thousand dollars on a bottle of wine. Um, for whatever reason, significant uh, emotionally to something in their past or not. Uh, There's some people that will spend $2 million on a car because of its performance and its build quality and its, and its heritage. Um, f for Wilson Audio, I, I do know that as I've traveled around the world and talked to, to uh, people in the Wilson Audio community, that they love music. They love the way that music touches them and stirs their emotions and how Wilson Audio products do that in a unique way. And in a lot of ways, people have a hard time describing what it is, but they feel it. Another element is um, that I believe that people that buy Wilson Audio products have earned their money and saved their money, and it's, it has been something that they've been aspiring to. And we don't take that for granted, right? People invest in our products. Um, just like my dad found out as he was traveling in Asia that he got in a cab and there was a, uh, the driver of the cab had Watt puppies in his home. Oh, and no way. it was something that he <laughs> loved and he, he saved up for and whatnot. Um, and so in respecting and honoring the fact that, um, that money is hard earned, that we want to provide as much value in our products as possible. Um, we're not cynical in how we develop our products, how we release our products. Um, we try to honor the people that invest in Wilson Audio and in their system. And that's why you'll find with uh, Wilson Audio products that are on the used market or are certified authentic through our program, that they maintain their value for a long time. Do you find that that uh, kind of introduces Wilson to a broader range of people? Or is it the people that would have bought Wilson anyways that that are just using the, the certified uh, avenue. Yeah, the, year after year for, for decades, we've had dealers come to us and ask for this entry-level type product where you, know, you can outsource and you can minimize the bill of materials. And it could be a, a really low price. And that would be a, a strategic way of bringing people into the Wilson fold, right? And, and to me, that's not authentic. A Tuntod is made with the same materials and the same hands as the Wham Master Chronosonic. And so 
uh, what we found is that the performance of a certified authentic, a, a, a product that is maybe 15 years old, let's go back to a Sasha Series 1. I would put a Sasha Series 1 against any product in its price category nowadays. It yeah. still performs well. And people that invest in Wilson Audio products, they usually take very good care of them. And through the Certified Authentic program, through our dealers and also through Wilson Audio, they're refreshed. Anything that needs to be changed, resistors are changed out. They're rebuffed and polished. They're, they're brought up to specifications of when they were new, right? And so uh, I, I loved hearing my dad say the entry-level Wilson Audio product is a Certified Authentic product. Right. So we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of cheapening our brand and cheapening the products to try to hit a price point in in uh, in business school. Of course, that was one of the approaches. How do you strip out as much as you can while increasing the price as much as you can to satisfy your shareholders? Wilson Audio doesn't have shareholders. It's still it's still privately owned. And we make decisions based off of what's the best product. How can we serve the music and serve the people that invest in Wilson Audio? Now, um, in kind of learning a little bit more about Wilson, as I was uh, researching um, kind of the company and all that, it is a polarizing brand. Like there are folks that absolutely love it. There's an entire community dedicated to people that love Wilson products. Uh, And then you also have the flip side of the the coin where there's people that don't love Wilson Audio. that polarization, I mean, not a lot of companies get that. So are the detractors something that you consider when you're developing products or you're developing marketing uh, or you're kind of looking at ways to expand the brand? Uh, Or do you just say some people aren't going to like this and the people that like it, we're going to service them? Any new product development goes through a system of uh, analyzing, A, would we want to own this in our home? And there are several products that are uh, developing right now that, yes, that's the answer to it. I can't wait to get it in my home. Uh, so it goes through that litmus test first. Um, and then are, are there enough significant changes we can do to, let's say, an existing platform to justify releasing a new product? And if the answer is yes, then yes, we start down that road of development and uh, bettering that product line. Um, I will say it does not cross or even come into the calculus of us making a new product of what the uh, competition is doing in the market, uh, what people are saying in the forums or online. It is, do we want to own it and can we make it better? There's a passion in the creative process. There, the, the creative process is a reward unto itself. And if I'm excited about it and the team's excited about it, then we want to create it. It's really simpler than people would assume. Uh, there are always going to be people that are going to agree with what you say, what you do, what you create, and people that will oppose it for whatever reason. And isn't that the beauty of life is, uh, is agency and our thought processes. Um, and more power to them. And, it's, and really, Wilson Audio isn't for everyone, and that's okay. So we've kind of talked about the, a little bit of the history of the Wilson brand and uh, products, uh, a little bit of the present. Um, what do you see as the future of 
maybe not Wilson Audio specifically. I, I don't necessarily want all your secret sauce. But what do you see as kind of the, the future of hi-fi in general? Uh, do you think people are going to be uh, getting into hi-fi in the same degree that they have previously? Uh, is it going to be kind of a different uh, audience? Uh, or if you have any thoughts on on kind of where you predict things will go? I think it's wonderful that people are genuinely excited about Bluetooth technology as they are with uh, spinning vinyl. <laughs> and are those like polar opposite? You know, it's you, a strange think, time, right? Yeah. It, it, you would think that it would be one way or the other and the road in front of us and, and what technologies are going to be developed. It would be absolutely clear. Um, what I do really like about where we are as an industry is that people want to engage with music. There is technology being developed to allow people to engage with music in the way that suits their lifestyle best. And each one of those avenues is being continuously refined. So you go down, you know, cartridge, turntable, uh, you know, records, that's being refined and it's better than it ever has been. And, and Bluetooth streaming, Wi-Fi, uh, you know, there are a lot of companies that are, that are developing fantastic ways of doing that. And the gap between them, it, it, there are several arguments in the world, vanilla ice cream or chocolate ice cream, which one's better, right? And, and you get a room full of people and you're talking about ice cream and you won't get 100% consensus on it, right? So even the most delicious things out there, even being slightly lactose intolerant myself, uh, you know, you won't get consensus. So it's, it's kind of silly to think that there would be consensus in an industry as, as diverse in ways of tapping into your music as our industry is. But I do like how when, uh, when a company, when a person, when people get together and they say, this is the way we want to engage with our music, they spend their time and effort creating better and more efficient and, and, um, you know, just better ways to doing that. Uh, I like that. I like seeing that. I, I like being a part of a company that's doing that. So, um, I, see in the future that we're going to get devices that uh, are smaller and more convenient. We're going to get um, electronics that are more powerful and cleaner. Uh, we're going to get devices that uh, will allow us to connect with nostalgia and, and the ritual of playing music in a more satisfying way. We're going to get systems that when we sit down and listen to that we will be more and more amazed by what is captured on those cds or in that file or on that record um that record is the same when it was pressed back in 1968 as it is now and we're still discovering stuff in those grooves so that's exciting that's i, I that's that's where i see things going that there's a continual refinement I love that. Now, last question for the day. If I was to catch you on a random day of the week or anything like that, what would be the soundtrack to your life? What are, what are the songs that you listen to on the daily basis? What do you sit mm -hmm. down and put on uh, your whams or whatever setup you currently have? What would be that soundtrack for you? Um, <laughs> Fridays, um, it's kind of a running thing around here. Fridays is Pink Floyd Fridays for me. Ah, um, so nice. I, 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 I love listening to Pink Floyd on Fridays, whether it's one track or hours of it. 
Um, I've got several different playlists that I that I have. One of them is Guilty Pleasures, and it's songs all the way back that remind me of my childhood and elementary school and, and high school. And the, the recordings are horrible, <laughs> but they're nostalgic, right? Um, you know, when, when I'm working out, uh, it's going to be a different playlist than, you know, if I'm doing yoga or, you know, it, it really depends on the mood. It's it's almost like the, the question of what's your favorite color? And for me, it's yeah. depending on the day, depending on the mood. Um, you know, road trip music is different than when I've got a buddy coming over and they're looking at, I've got uh, Chronosonic XVXs in my uh, listening room. And they say, what are those? You know, how that the stuff I play there is going to be very different than the stuff that I'm playing as I'm in my car, you know, driving out to to a show or on vacation with my family. So um, I, I hate to be disappointing and not, you know, name drop. The, this, these are my go to kind of thing. Um, once again, we live in a time where we have access to just about everything ever recorded. And yeah. isn't that wonderful? I love it. Yeah. Daryl. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I feel like I learned a lot. I think the listeners will absolutely love this. And uh, yeah, I appreciate having you on. Thank you, Jordan. It was a wonderful conversation. Take care and all the best, everyone. <laughs>